Hello everyone, welcome to King's Talk, presented by Cap City Crown. This is Tony with me as always. We've got John. Well, where do you even start? Last time we've talked, the Kings have gone 2-1, and one, I believe. They won on Friday against the team. Who was it, John? Who <laughs> they beat last Friday? The Phoenix Suns. The Phoenix Suns in a game without Kevin Durant or Bradley Beal, which is, you know... Classic, right? When I like, when's the last time we've played Kevin Durant? It feels like it's been a minute. I definitely don't think he played with the Suns last season. I, I personally, I could not tell you. Like, did we? I did the Kings ever play Durant when he was even on the Nets? I, I really don't know. Anyways, we beat the Suns without two of their big three, and then we played again on Monday. Monday? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Monday. Sorry, this week's it's all confusing already. <laughs> Uh, they played on Monday, beat another team. I'm just giving great analysis right now. They beat the... Uh, you just said the name. You said the name a second ago. Did did I? Yeah. The Nets. The Nets. Yeah, there you go. It's just a team we never play, right? We play twice a year. Beat the Nets pretty handily as well. Um, and then the, the classic back-to-back game. Haven't won one of those yet. Lost to the Clippers. The Kings have lost nine games this year. The four teams, the Clippers, the Rockets, the Spurs, the Pelicans. And so we play the Clippers, haven't beat them, haven't won a, the second of a back-to-back yet. Just kind of, I don't know, is that, is that, is that a cause for concern, John? Like, how do you feel about this? Well, you could look at it in a number of ways, I guess. Probably just the immediate takeaway is, oh, the Kings struggle with back-to-backs. You think about the three back-to-backs they played. They played, I think, the first New Orleans game in New Orleans on a back-to-back after beating Dallas on the road. And then they obviously played two back-to-backs over the last couple weeks where the second game was against the Clippers. And they looked horrible in all of those and deflated and without energy and all that stuff. So you could easily say that it was a back-to-back problem, but it could also be something else. I mean, you point out not just the Clippers and the Pelicans, but you throw the, uh, you can throw the Rockets in there too. I mean, they've, they've lost two games to the Warriors, but they're more of just a bugaboo team for the Kings. But like Houston, New Orleans, and the Clippers, whether it was a back or back or not, back to back or not, I mean, the two Clippers games were back to backs, but the two games in Houston weren't back to backs. The third game, that, that in season tournament game where the Kings kind of just fell off after kind of a nice start against the Pelicans wasn't a back to back. There are just times where maybe it's specific opponents have the best of them. I mean, you think about Houston, they're kind of big. They've got some length and some defenders. New Orleans is big in the middle. They've got a lot of length all around. And the Clippers are also very long. I mean, there's a lot of talk about maybe that kind of being a bothersome thing for the Kings. And we've seen that last season. I think when they play New Orleans, they struggled a few times, I think, you know, Minnesota has some length and some size last season. I think they got the best of the Kings a few times. This has been kind of a common trend that, you know, maybe this is kind of an opponent thing. Do you think that that could have anything to do with it? Yeah, I mean, it could for sure. I mean, the Kings length, I think, is an issue. I think we're starting to really see that. I mean, I, I, yeah, I the matchups are just aren't favorable in the teams they've really lost to. And I think that's just posing a bigger problem, like going forward. Like, do they need more length? I mean, there's been so much discussion about Harrison Barnes. And I saw a good article today, actually on Reddit, talking about how the Kings don't have that true four and that they kind of just have two threes going back between the, the power forward position and Keegan Murray. Even Trey Lyles is kind of undersized at six eight. I think they just need some more length, really. And... I think even with Barnes, I, I mean, I like Barnes as a starter, and I don't think he, well, I mean, technically Murray's the starting power forward, but people are saying, like, Murray should just be the three now, and they need to get some more length at that four position, because, yeah, I mean, I think the length is really starting to affect the Kings, and I think it it, it is holding them back and being that great team, as you wrote earlier today. Yeah, I have a question off of that. I mean, if... Like, honestly speaking, I hear they don't have enough size. You know, Harrison Barnes is not like a true four or whatever. I mean, in a lot of ways, he kind of is. But I see where the point really makes a lot of sense in that the Kings are a little undersized at center. You know, Sabonis is strong. 
and has a presence down there. But he's been bothered by bigger guys. You know, I think Zubox has gotten the best of him a few times. I think he performed better in that third New Orleans game, but Valanchunas seems to always have his number. Maybe not have his number, but you can kind of see a discernible difference in the impact, and you can see Sabonis get bothered. So, like, if the need for more length is, in fact, what is kind of the solution to all this, I feel like it's not even so much Murray and Barnes's fault. And I don't know if it's anybody's fault. I don't know if I want to use that phraseology, but I'm going to use it anyways because I don't have any, any, any way else to put it. But I guess it's more like Sabonis's fault because he's just that's fair. Not a big. How tall is Sabonis? You know, he's like six eight. I think he's like he's probably six ten. Like, how tall is how tall is he? True, because he's listed at six eleven. Think he's six ten six. I think he's more like six nine. He looks so small against true centers. I'm like, dang, this guy's kind of small. Maybe he's probably taller than 6'8". I, I want to say even, I would lean closer to 6'9 than 6'10". I mean, with shoes on, he's probably at least 6'9 and a half. And then, you know, you make it 6'10 with the 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 law of r- r- rounding up. But, yeah. I mean, he's not, he's not big. And he's not, he's got some good ball handling and great finesse with his passes and ability to connect with other guys. But he's not super explosive or anything like that. I mean, he's got fundamentals and stuff like that. But it's not like he's like jumping over guys or blowing around guys or anything like that. So, I mean, that that could be something. I mean, I feel like that is such a common thread that comes up because there are a lot of people outside the Kings fan base and those that watch the Kings that question Sabonis. And you hear a lot of talk about like, oh, is he is he tough enough? Is is he too soft and all this? I'm like, he's just not, he's just not big, you know? Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, it has put them at a disadvantage against longer teams. And I think one of the things you've also seen is that against some of these longer teams, I think in that New Orleans game, the in-season tournament game, I think Fox had a bunch of turnovers, and I think Monk might have even had like three or four turnovers. And then the other night against the Clippers, I think Monk and Fox both had four turnovers. So it's like you could talk about length and stuff like that, but the, the penetrators, the guys that touch paint and then can kick it out and spray it out, they're having trouble too. And I mean, it's almost like you can't even put it on one person or two people in terms of the lack of size and whatnot. I mean, the whole team is seems to be bothered by by size, if anything. Mm-hmm. But is there anything to that? I don't know. I, I just feel like it, it's all coming back to Harrison Barnes right now, personally. <laughs> like Now that I think about it, I, I always give Barnes a lot of like slack and whatnot. I don't think it's his fault. We had a nice conversation about him last week about how plays aren't drawn for him and whatnot. But, I, and again, it isn't his fault. And Sabonis, I, get, I agree, he is undersized, leading to that length deficiency, I suppose. But should Barnes be on this team anymore if we if we need to improve in ways? He just doesn't seem like, again, plays aren't being called for him. And he's doing what he can and what the offense allows uh, and what the team allows him to do. But it's like, maybe just get a... a I mean, it'd have to be in a trade at this point. We just signed him to three, a three-year deal, but maybe get someone better suited for this role. I think that's what's... I mean, I get it. I, I see a lot of people talking about how Barnes is the issue, and I, I hate to say that because I, I don't think it's him personally, and there's my ice maker, by the way. I just think... the <laughs> Stupid ice maker. I, I just think if they want to get better, they need to find a better role player for that four position and move Murray to the three because I just don't I don't think Barnes is making him better and it's not his fault per se I just think they need more length at that four a better defender just like a, a taller three and D guy at the four position I just feel like that's the biggest thing holding the Kings back and I'm starting to actually see that I mean I think personnel issues are something that's kind of creeped more and more into the discourse I guess before considering another factor kind of centering on that Barnes thing. I mean, is that almost set up an argument for the Kings should trade for Pascal Siakam? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I right? I know, it's kind of weird, huh? Um I mean, I don't think you need Siakam specifically. I I I think Siakam would be a little too much just because not even so much his contract, it's more of that he's not a 3 and D guy. If he was yeah. if he can hit the 3 well, I'd be like all all for it, really. But right. he can't. And it's like, how many guys, I mean, I don't know, I guess Fox is turning more into a three-point shooter this year than he has in seasons past. 
But you still want him getting in the paint mostly. So Bonus is gonna always gonna get most of his buckets in the paint. Siakam, I, I feel like the the paint would just get crowded at that point. And I don't know. I, I don't know though. It is interesting. I, I would be like I would say no to Siakam, but like if we got him. Again, I don't know what you have to give up as long as you're not getting rid of the core. I don't, I don't know. I, now I'm kind of like torn up on that. It's like, could he help out? Could he? The only reason I bring that up is because I agree with you. I mean, like, he'd be longer and a better defender, but all the other factors, no shooting, kind of being a, more of someone suited for a Sabonis type role and kind of getting a redundancy there. Like, we've talked about that a lot for why the Kings probably wouldn't trade for Siakam, or at least, I mean, they'd have to probably trade a lot to do it, and that's definitely not worth it at that point. But, you know, we talked about this when the Kings re-signed Harrison Barnes, which is like, that was a good move because it was the right move. There wasn't really another option. You could have swung for the fences, but that would have been a dangerous gamble, say, on someone like Kyle Kuzma or something like that. And we can kind of all agree that Barnes, given the makeup of the team and the style of the team, is better than Kuzma. And it's almost just like, like you're kind of just stuck with Barnes, you know? Yeah. And that just, unfortunately, seems kind of the case. And I don't think that's all bad because I do think that two, six, eight at the three and four positions with Barnes and, and Murray and Sabonis can work. And, and it's not like super undersized, super small in the modern NBA. But thinking about another thing here is, in all these games that they've lost, back-to-back or not, but kind of talking about the Houston games, some of the New Orleans games, and these Clippers games, is that when things get hard for the Kings, they just kind of have a, a habit of kind of letting go of the rope. You know, it kind of, it, even if not just consciously doing it, it's like an implicit throwing in of the towel. And Mike Brown said after the Clippers loss on Tuesday that the thing that was most disappointing about the, the game was the fact that You know, sometimes you just have to fight, and our team didn't fight tonight. And, you know, they came off a great win against Brooklyn where they played both ends of the floor. They hit a franchise record for three-pointers made in a single game. And, you know, the defense and offense were feeding off each other. It was a pretty manageable win. They maintained a lead, and I don't even think the Nets ever had a lead in that game. Played really well, and things were coming to them. They were able to play the way they wanted to play. Things Threes were falling. Things were going their way. Against the Clippers, things weren't going their way so much. I mean, I think they started the game 4 4 of 11 from 3, but then they didn't hit another 3 until like midway or late in the third quarter. And they finished with, I think, just 10 of, I think it was 10 of of 36 or something like that. Not a great clip. And they were just getting totally stomped on by some of – the Clippers stars. I mean, I don't think anybody could really stop Kawhi Leonard at a certain point there. And they, they bothered the Kings with their length and the Kings really had to, they were put in a position where they really would had to claw and fight to make it a game. And we've seen them do that. We've seen them get dirty. We've seen them play this chaotic style of basketball that they can thrive off of. But like Mike Brown said, they didn't fight. And there's been times where they do that. Again, the Houston losses, the first loss in New Orleans, the kind of, they didn't really give up in the in-season tournament game, but there was a certain point where there was just no answer and the fight wasn't strong enough. And then obviously these Clippers losses, they were just essentially dead on arrival. And it's almost like what happens when the Kings can't rest their hat on something? What happens when there's a little bit of adversity? Which is surprising because this team played so well through adversity last season. I mean, granted, they were healthy. But they were a good road team. You know, they, they, they put together some nice stretches on both ends of the floor in, in those road situations late in the game. I think what they had like a good road defensive rating and I think they had a good late game defensive rating. You know, this is a team that should be thriving off of that stuff. And now they're not really doing that as much. Do you think that there's like some kind of a, a fight issue within this team when things get too difficult? They're not as poised to go ahead and and again like Mike Brown said make a game dirty and try to make it close and make it a game I mean is that is that a thing I mean it sure seems like it I I, I don't 
I don't know, because they were so resilient last year. It seemed like they had the fight within them every game. I just, I don't know what's different this year. It just seems like their drive is down. They just don't seem like they have the fight that they did. I mean, that that Warriors game was good to see when they won the in-season tournament group stage. That seemed like they had a lot of fight in that game. Again, it meant a little more, so it's a little different. But I, I just, it's hard to pinpoint what's different this year. Maybe they're just... They made the playoffs. They're too, they're too good to fight back now. When they're losing, they just kind of all give up. Maybe they're tired more from playing both sides of the ball a little harder. Um, it is odd, though. But it, again, it's another issue. Um, what's holding them back from being that great team is that they don't seem like they had the drive that they did last year and breaking that postseason drought. Maybe there's not enough on the line at this point. Last year, they had that that ambition to play, break that 16-year playoff drought. Maybe they just, there's not enough on the line. Maybe they, I don't know. I don't want to just start like th- thinking of what they might think. Well, yeah. I mean, you mentioned the playing of the both ends of the floor. That's been a common theme this season the the fatigue and the effect it has on offense and all that but I mean another thing that Mike Brown has consistently said this season from the start was that well the thing that's going to make this year different is we weren't hunted people didn't like pay too much attention to us on the schedule and we could have we very well could have benefited from that now we are the hunted you hear his players echo that I mean does that have anything to do with it are the are the kings just going up against a little bit more of a well-prepared opponent this season. I mean, that's a good point honestly. They yeah, I mean, they're they're the team on not everyone's schedules, but they're a better team in this league now. People are going to be like you said, more prepared to play them harder. And I I guess I didn't think about that too much. It is interesting though cuz I mean, I that's a good point. Again, they've only lost to what? 9 four teams, right? 9 games, four teams. I mean, the Pelicans are a good team. Where are they ranked? Are they really good? I don't. I don't know the. Standings. I think going into that in-season tournament game, they were only like two games above five hundred. Okay. I, Let me pull up the standings right Yeah, now. I'm going to pull them up too. So the Pelicans are in the tenth seed at thirteen eleventh. The Warriors are ten and thirteen. The Rockets are eleven and nine, and the Clippers are thirteen and ten. So. I mean, they're good. Most teams in the West are pretty good, other than the Warriors, Jazz, Grizzlies, Blazers, and Spurs. But I, I believe the Kings do have a pretty good record against the top teams of the league. Like, we beat the Timberwolves, we beat the Thunder, we beat the Mavericks, we beat the Nuggets, we beat the Lakers, we beat the Suns. I mean, it's true. We, we, they beat a lot of good teams, and they haven't really lost to any bad teams either. I don't know, it's kind of interesting. No, that's true. Again, it's like, I don't think we're going to, like you said, I don't think we're going to come up with an answer here. But, I mean, this is just, it's it's at a crossroads where certain trends have kind of picked up. It's hard to tell if it's specific opponents, the makeup of opponents and their personnel, or the timing of things, or the fight of the team, or the, you know, uh, impression that opponents have of the Kings and the, the preparation they have to put into play. I, I don't know if it's probably a combination of all those, you know, and throw in also the playing the two ends of the floor and what that kind of does to this, to this team. Mm. I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea, but it's something that I think this group can figure out. I mean, I think one of the things Mike Brown said after the Clippers game was he was also disappointed in the fact that you know, you're looking at the first half where the Clippers scored 70 points on 60% from the field with 30 plus points in the paint. And he was, he was kind of annoyed that his team was talking about what they need to do on offense. They kept talking about what this thing and that thing on offense when what they should have been talking about is the defense. And with all the focus on the back to backs after they beat Brooklyn, knowing that there was a second of a back to back coming up and the struggles they had had in the two first instances of those kinds of games, you know, they were asking players and Mike Brown about that. And like Malik Monk said, I mean, you have to come out with a defense first mindset. And you talk about the playing two ends of the floor and the, the fight and all that stuff that kind of come to the surface most when you kind of think about it that way. And, you know, Mike Brown said, our team thinks of punching another team back as scoring. And what we really should be thinking about punching teams back as, especially against playoff teams, is punching them back with stops and making things grimy and ugly and making things difficult. So, 
I don't know. It could just be the Kings needing to kind of orient themselves into being a little bit more of that, that kind of team. But, you know, then that just gets us back in the conversation. Is the roster built for that? All this stuff. I don't know. I think the Kings are in an interesting point this season. I think they've proven they're really good. But are they great? I don't think they've proven that at all. Yeah, I mean, they're at an interesting crossroads. uh, Like I said, like last year was such a big season. They it was breaking the playoff drought, which was monumental. I mean, it was huge. It was such a big deal. It wasn't a little two season playoff drought. I mean, this is one of the worst run franchises in the 21st century. And they finally got this team back on track. So, I mean, the the goal there was literally break that playoff drought. Whatever's whatever's on top of that, whatever you get out of that, it's just kind of like icing on the cake, right? This year, it's like they're at this crossroads where it's like, are they going to be just that that playoff team for years to come? Which is, you know, not a terrible thing. It's better than missing the playoffs 16 years in a row. But no, no one wants that. I mean, the ultimate goal is always to go to the championship. And what route are they going to take? Are they going to take that next step and be the Warriors, be a Nuggets team? Or are they just going to stay in that that team that keeps making the playoffs and doesn't do anything? Like the Sixers, the Sixers, the Clippers, never make it to the Western Conference or the Conference Finals, never make it to the Finals, just consistently get knocked out in the second round. The Clippers, again, the Clippers, Lob City Clippers team too, never made it to the Western Conference Finals. And I mean, that's just, that's just plateauing, right? And you got to get over the plateau. And this might be the hardest plateau they're going to face is getting, is going to that great team. I, I, this is kind of open-ended because we're not going to come up with a solution right now. It's just Mike Brown talks about it all the time. The good teams have to have a certain amount of leadership and know-how of how to perform. And that starts with on-floor leadership and whatnot. You know, I, I think this really just kind of comes down to is the team going to mature and figure out? I mean, I think they're a mature team, of course, but are they going to mature and really realize what it takes and really buy into what it takes 100%. They're definitely bought into the idea of it. They're buying into the work that needs to be put into it, but they haven't put in that work yet. So this is, I mean, I think that's what almost increases the intrigue of this season. It's like, oh, how good can the Kings be? It's like, really like, well, yeah, I guess like, are the Kings going to be just good or are they going to be great? Or how long is that going to take? I mean, we're only, what, like 23 games into the season, so it's really early. But they've definitely made things interesting because they've shown a lot of good, but they've shown a lot of bad, and the bad has looked like when they lose, more often than not, it's a pretty bad loss. Yeah, there are ugly losses. And, like, it's easy to compare to the Warriors, uh, like their dynasty, because I feel like the Kings, I don't know, maybe being a NorCal team, maybe being, like, I mean, the Warriors are, not as bad as the Kings, but they were pretty pathetic for a second there too. Oh yeah. I mean, they, they made the playoffs with Steph that first year. The next year they were still trying to figure it out. They got a lot more attention, especially after signing Iguodala. Um, But then they got bounced in the first round and maybe that's where the Kings are right now. They're still kind of just putting the things together. Do I expect the Kings to win the championship this year? I don't. I'm a Dodgers fan. Just put it in perspective. Like every year I literally expect the Dodgers to win the world series Anything less is a disappointment. Like, I don't feel that about the Kings this year, you know? <laughs> Unless they can defer a bunch of De'Aaron Fox's contract. <laughs> yeah, exactly. $680 million of it. But it's just, it's kind of like that. I, I don't feel that way. I don't, I don't think they're there yet. Like, I'm going to believe, I'm going to root for them to do it all the way. But, like, realistically thinking, it's just, I just don't see it. And maybe they're just in this second Warrior season where they're still trying to figure it out. Probably won't win it. And then next year, when Keegan Murray's fully developed, he, he's looked a little better the last couple of games since we started talking about his development mm-hmm. uh, maybe being an issue. I mean, he's been looking better. And, and maybe they can figure it out by the end of the year. But I don't know. I, I, like I said, they're at this plateau right now. And are they going to put in the work to go from good to great? Yeah. And I think you laid it out well by talking about the, the prolonged duration, multi-year process for the Warriors to get where they were. I mean, it took the Nuggets. I mean, of course, the Jamal Murray injury put them back a little bit, but it took them a little bit, too. You know, they were kind of that playoff team for the last several years, and then they finally won a championship. I mean, I think we can all agree that the Kings are on the right highway, headed in the right direction. How far away the destination is that they want to get to, 
it kind of remains unknown at this point. And, you know, it's just kind of, again, it adds to the intrigue of watching the team, at least for me. But it's a little bit of a conundrum for the Kings. You know, the Kings just have to continue, I guess, controlling what they can control. It's just the simple stuff, but... I thought, I thought that was worthy of a nice conversation. We just killed 30 minutes, so. <laughs> I know. But, I mean, it's, I think it's the hottest topic, obviously. It's just, I mean, everyone's thinking it. Like, do, do the Kings have what it takes? Yeah. And they're, they have to prove it still. They have a lot to prove. Yeah, and the timing of everything, you know, it's mid-December. You're over 20, the past the 20-game mark. Mm-hmm. Kind of at that point where you start really, truly evaluating what teams are legitimate, what teams aren't, what teams have, what they don't, all that stuff. So, fitting time to have this conversation. But uh, moving along to other topics, I guess. You know, I feel like every couple of weeks we have to just bring up Sasha Vizenkov. And I want to start by saying Sasha Vizenkov is not perfect. I think what? you've seen it in the last two He's perfect games. to me. <laughs> He's <laughs> when he wakes up and looks at you with his big blue Bulgarian eyes, he's perfect to you. I was thinking sorry, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna hijack this go real ahead, quick. Go ahead. Someone on Reddit posted like a <laughs> like a question. It's like who who would be the one players player on the Kings you'd want to grab a drink with? And my thought my first thought was Sasha. I don't know why. He just seems like a down to earth guy. Probably has an interesting story. So, I mean, that's my answer. Comment below who you, who you would want to have a drink with. John, I want to hear you, though. I mean, top of your head. Who would I want to have a drink with? I mean, there's part of me that says Malik Monk. That's I mean, the thing is, too, with these athletes is I don't think any of them drink, but... That's fair. <laughs> Malink Monk is kind of maybe the first one that comes to mind, but I, I think I think Trey Lyles for kind of the same reason. Yeah, that's right. I think... That's a guy that has a story and has kind of had his ups and downs, and I think that would be interesting. And maybe I could recommend some actually good books to him. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That'd probably be my answer. I'd probably go with Trey Trey Lyles. Okay, that's. I mean, that's a great one. Who would you not have a drink with? Um, who would I not like? Who would you be like? No, like he's the last person I would offer a beer to. Man. On the Kings, I'm trying to think. Yeah. I'm trying to go through the starters. I feel like <laughs> maybe it's I'll me talk- being me. Maybe just Barnes. I feel like Barnes would just be like really. Yeah, boring. I was gonna say Barnes. What's up, Barnes? Hey, I feel like Barnes is a man of two words. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So Barnes, tell me, tell me crazy college stories. Nah, just like embarrassed. No, nah, I don't know. It's part of my life. I don't want to relive. Oh, okay. I was just in my dorm. I was just <laughs> yeah. in the dorm in the gym. Just he just working. comes up as kind of boring. He seems like the type of guy that I would like say stuff sarcastically to and he <laughs> just take it seriously. <laughs> like, oh, really? You did that? Like, no, dude. Yeah. I'm fucking around. That is 100% <laughs> Barnes. That's just the impression I get from him. But yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I would go with Barnes too. I feel like he'd be Bar- a bit of a dud. But maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? Maybe he's the funniest and most enjoyable guy on the team but i know he he his first ever sip of alcohol was after the warriors won their first championship was it yeah he had never drank before yeah i think he was like 22 that year and never never drank or maybe he was 21 but still i mean you don't have to be 21 when you're going to when you're in chapel hill <laughs> yeah that's a good point you know i don't think those kids let back over there in north carolina as his first and last sip and playing one's another one yeah it's been a rough, rough, rough go for him. A rough 11 years, however long it's been. It's been Not a dry that 11 years. Seven? How, when was that? 15? Eight years? Yeah, so eight, eight, nine years, something like that. You know what my biggest problem with Barnes is? Huh. Is that at the end of the 1920, the, right before COVID happened, or maybe it was the season before COVID, and he was growing out his beard. And he said that he's not going to shave it until the Kings make the playoffs. And then, then the season ended and he shaved it. It's like, yeah, you know, if you're going to make that statement, like you better not shave that beard until the Kings make the playoffs. Like imagine he like literally waited four years until earlier this year when the Kings made it. I mean, crazy. And I would have respected him. He just looks like James Harden. Yeah. He should, He said it. I, I I wasn't the one who made the 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 statement. It was Barnes. That's he, a that's a good point. If he's a man of his word, he would have done that. Yeah, 
It's always rubbed me the wrong way for some reason. Yeah, just Typical don't. senator. <laughs> exactly. Everybody calls him the senator, the future politician. That's yeah. a typical politician. He, I mean, he is, right? He's like close enough being the treasurer of the NBA, the NBA PA. Yeah. So how do you even get that job? So yeah, I'm going to be the treasurer. It's like almost like trying it out for like for school. I'm going to be the secretary treasurer. That's all you need to know why he's the last person you need to go get a drink with. Yeah. Like, yeah, I want to be the secretary. I want to do the accounting. <laughs> okay. Yeah, give it to Harry. Let him handle it. Yeah, yeah no, no, give it to Harry. Yeah, exactly. We're just dog. He's ragging on Barnes. This whole podcast, <laughs> really. <laughs> it's been a Barnes rag sesh. He's not big enough. He doesn't defend. He he's a liar. Freaking, you know, you can't down a 40 with him. <laughs> yeah. This is- Barnes, man, jeez, we really need that, and we really need a new starting small forward, power forward, or whatever he is, technically, someone that can defend multiple positions and drink like a fish. Exactly, that's Lori Markannon. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Get the finish. Exactly, <laughs> but Sasha Vizenkov. Oh, Vizenkov. <laughs> where, do we, where do we even leave off i started i started by saying he's not perfect tony insisted that he is tony and sasha you know have a special thing yeah but Vizenkov's not perfect you've seen his defense kind of go up and down uh i think even in these last two games in the back-to-back you've seen a nice defensive moment and then a pretty glaringly bad defensive moment where he gets caught in the air gets beat or doesn't get in front of a guy or something like that but one of the things that just constantly shines through with Vizenkov is his instinct and attitude about the game. Because he'll turn around, and if he has a bad defensive moment, it's almost like you can count on him in the next couple defensive possessions or whenever he gets back in the game to somehow come up with a great steal where he uses his instincts and his hands to come up with something. And then also, I feel like more often than not, which was surprising to us, I thought he would have had more of those bad defensive moments more frequently, but he more often than not seems to be holding his own. And we saw him, was it the Brooklyn game where he had 14 points and it, which is a career high? Yeah. No, it was the Suns game. That was the Suns game? I believe it was the Suns yeah, game. Yeah, you're right. 14 points, looked, had some good defensive moments, all this stuff. And, you know, I think even in garbage time against the Clippers, Vizenkov played with kind of like that summer league team, as we call it. And he looked like the best player on the floor. I think he hooked up with like three assists for guys. He had a couple big rebounds. I think he hit a three late in the game. I mean, there's just something about Vizenkov where it's like, you like what you're getting out of him. He's definitely put you in a position where you can play Lyles and him together, which was kind of the big ambition, the thing that really came to our minds first when we were talking about him and Lyles being on the same team. And a lot of that's worked out really well. But it's like, now I keep thinking, I'm like, well, how good can he be? I mean, like, because he's exceeded expectations, or at least I would have thought it would have taken a longer time for him to get to this point. You see the instinct, you see the smarts, you see the positive grasp and understanding of his role and what it, what he, what it takes for him to expand that, doing the little things, taking open shots, all that stuff. And then you kind of factor in the shooting touch, the quick release, and the fact that he does have some pretty decent size for the NBA. I mean, at like 6'7", I think. Or is he 6'9"? He's 6'9", I think listed as 6'9". So has good NBA size. Is there a point where he's just going to have more of an elevated role off the bench? Or is he going to develop into something more? I mean, where do you really see Sasha Vizenkov going? Because I think in exceeding the expectations, he's kind of broadened the potential scope of that. I think he could, he, he's definitely looked like he could do something a little bit more special than what I would have imagined in September or October. What do you think? Yeah, I think he's more than capable of doing a lot more in this league than his role at the moment or just being a bench guy. I mean, I think an easy guy to compare him to is Nemanja Bielica when he was on the Kings. Kind of just a big <laughs> European guy, I guess. I guess that's not the only comparison, but just like a stretch for. Vizenkov's a little, I think, quicker than Bielitsa was. But just like a, a guy, high basketball IQ, going to always make the right play, even if he can't make the play physically, because he does have his limitations. He he knows what he's going to do. And he, I, I just think he's, he's a very smart, high basketball IQ player. 
I mean, I, I think he can be a starter in this league, honestly. I think he can play a four, a good four. He's a good rebounder. He's a little undersized, as we were talking about, in length. I don't know if he has that quickness to guard a lot of threes in this league. I'd rather have him be at the four, personally. But and I guess that brings up size again. But I, I, th- I think he has not a, like a ton of potential. I don't think he'll ever be like an all-star or MVP candidate. But I think he can be, I, I think, one of your typical... European players like a Bogdan Bogdanovich um just like a guy who's you know like do the fundamentals well shoot a high clip from make a lot of right plays know your place on the team I, that's what I see him being and I think that's good enough to be a starter in this league and maybe he will I mean we signed him to what a three-year deal I I could see at one point him starting on this team I really can I think he's he has that three-point shot and I think he would just really know his place on in the uh, offensive lineup and I'd rather have him shooting than Barnes, personally. I'm not saying right now is that that's what we need, but I think I would be more okay with him taking a scattered amount of threes than Barnes. Sometimes Barnes is threes when he doesn't get a lot of looks. It's just like, yeah, he's going to miss that. So I, I, would, I just trust him with the shot a little more. And I mean, personally, at least for the Kings, too, that's what they need from the, their starting four. But yeah, I think I think he can be a starter in this league for sure. I think, I mean, I, that's why I brought this up because I was like starting to think that a little bit, like actually kind of have some belief in it. And I'm glad you brought up Bohan Bogdanovich because I was going to mention him because people always compare him to Belitsa. And of course, it makes sense. Belly played with the Kings. Kings fans are pretty familiar with him. But pretty quickly into Vizenkov's time with the Kings, I was like, no, that's not really fair. He definitely is more of a Bohan Bogdanovich. And when you start thinking about that, that's almost a higher ceiling in terms of the effect. I mean, Bohan's had a really nice career in the NBA. I mean, I think it's it's interesting. You talk about three or the four. He can play the three. I mean, if he's, if he were to start, Murray would be guarding the three and perimeter guys and stuff like that. You'd be hiding Vizenkov defensively. You would lose a lot. I think there's a long way before he starts starting because I think the defense would have to take some significant steps. But that comes with time, and we've seen how much he's grown in just such a short time. Again, it's like I'm not ready to come up with a conclusion as to where he'll end up, but the idea that that can happen, I think, has definitely come into frame at this point. So I think Vizinkov, he has the potential to be really, really good. I think he has the potential to be a starter. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But Bohan Bogdanovich, I think, is a really interesting kind of comparison there. You know, smart, good shooter, has some decent size, even if it's, there's some lacking athleticism. There's definitely a world where Vizenkov can really kind of live up to what I think Olympiakos and European fans would naively or correctly assume is the, the ceiling of, of their guy. But who knows? It's that, I guess that's part of the fun. Just keep watching Sasha Vizenkov surprise you have a down moment and then come back with two good moments. He's really kind of an interesting thing. And then of of course there's that small lineup which you've you've seen a good good amount of over the last couple of weeks where maybe it's not for prolonged stretches with him and Lyles playing the 4 and 5, but they've been good and they've kind of been able to play in a way that can hold down the fort best when Sabonis is off the floor. And I guess that's kind of a nice transition to the guy that's supposed to be backing up DeMontis Sabonis, JaVale McGee, who is basically getting first run at the backup five with Alex Len out with his ankle injury. How long ago was that? That was like almost a month ago. Alex Len, I think, is set to come back because the initial thing was six to eight weeks, which I think put him to around New Year's, somewhere around there, maybe late December, early January. I don't know if there's an updated timeline on him or anything like that, but there's kind of a reason why people are talking about Alex Len coming back. And which maybe you would not have thought would ever happen, but JaVale McGee can come in. He'll throw down a lob from Malik Monk. You know, he's got that vertical ability that stretches the floor that way. You see him come up with a nice defensive play. You've seen him come in and have stretches of energy that are really big. But for every good thing he does, he seems to piece it together with just boneheaded plays that he'll make again and again and again and again. Moving screens, goaltending needless fouls, getting into foul trouble quickly. I think he had like three fouls in like three minutes in the Brooklyn game. And, you know, I think he had a couple moments early in his time against the Clippers where he was making these kind of silly plays. Is this an adjustment thing for JaVale McGee or is this just who he's been his whole career? (laughs) 
I mean, that's who he is. It's JaVale McGee. He's shacked in a full MVP, right? For a reason. He's been this way his whole career. I don't really expect much different. Maybe he'll have better stretches than others. But I think this is where the depth at center is really going to come into play. And it sucks not having Len. Because you really don't, I mean, unless you go small with Lyles, you're kind of stuck with having him be the primary backup to Sabonis. Until you get Len back, really. I mean, this is why we were all kind of hesitant when they just dropped everyone for McGee with Labissier, Keita, and Noel, right? We just kind of, I mean, I'm not saying that any of them could have beat JaVale, but at least it would have given, given him some competition, maybe show that. Like you're not, you're just not the you're not going to just be the the ba- the primary backup because you have these accolades to your name like three championship rings to his name he doesn't have anyone to hold him in check right now as they kind of need him to be that backup center so I think things will get a little better with Lynn but it's definitely nice having that insurance with having Lynn there in case he starts messing up like he's doing now exactly I totally agree and whereas JaVale McGee is this kind of volatile player that'll give you a couple big plays a couple energetic plays but mix in these these silly plays but Alex Lynn is far more consistent maybe the exciting plays and the big plays aren't as exciting and big but the lowest of the lows for Alex Lynn is not that bad I mean, there's like a few times where he mishandles a ball or, you know, I don't even know. Like my complaints with Lynn are so minimal, but, you know, the potential complaints with JaVale or that's just, it's like a whole page front and back full of different worries. And a bunch of people rightfully give him a lot of credit. They're like, well, you know, that whole Shaqton in a fool thing is silly and all that stuff. He's a three-time champion. That doesn't erase the fact that he's been that kind of player his whole career. Both things can be true at the same time. He can contribute to championship teams, but he can also kind of be a bit of a liability sometimes. And I think that just kind of highlights the need for Lynn to come back. And I think it also highlights the fact that JaVale McGee, in my mind, is the third center of the true centers, not counting Lyles on this team, because there's just too much risk with him out there, unfortunately. You know, you play small amounts of minutes, you play four to seven minutes a half in one stretch. You got to go out there, play smart, play with energy. And he usually drops the ball on half of that, at least. And that's not why you brought in a three-time champion and a veteran. Mm -hmm. That seems antithetical to what a three-time champion and a veteran is supposed to bring. So the the conundrum of JaVale McGee continues. And he's, what, in his 16th year or whatever, 17th? I don't even know. He's been in the league forever. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just a common thing. It's just nothing's changed. And he was a good ad. I mean, he, he to the center depth, the center depth is good with Sabonis, Len, and McGee. But I, I think Len is clearly the backup five when he comes back. Mm-hmm. And uh, McGee's, McGee's got his issues. And this is just another reminder, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I mean, I like McGee. Honestly, he, he brings a certain energy to the team and off the bench, which I think is super important. Like he did have a couple dunks against the Clippers, which I'm not saying makes up for anything. Mm-hmm. But it is nice having at least some sort of presence like that, like that hype guy with Monk that he can work with. But, I mean, when he starts making boneheaded plays, it's you got to bring Len in and bring that balance back to the floor and what they need. Especially when it's not JaVale McGee that's solely responsible for those alley-oops the person that's mostly responsible for those alley-oops is malik monk so yeah it's not like you're benching Monk. yeah you know it's like you're you're still gonna get maybe not as many granted you're probably getting the most alley-oop and lob opportunities with mcgee out there but it's not falling off completely with len out there yeah off of mcgee though a guy that had fallen out of the rotation and we hadn't really seen in meaningful minutes i guess you'd put it in a long time is davion mitchell we saw Davion Mitchell come out. They needed a defensive presence out on the perimeter to have more ball pressure and whatnot. Mike Brown's talking about the team not putting the focus on the defensive end and focusing too much and fixating too much on the offensive end. Putting Davion Mitchell was a nice potential remedy to that or to, to, to kind of getting things on the right track. But watching Davion Mitchell in one game, granted, it was, it was kind of one of those things where you're like, oh, okay, he's still a good defender with not much on offense. And he seems to be cementing himself in that spot. Maybe that doesn't matter too much. Maybe Keon Ellis is the guy there going forward. That could easily be true. But if you start talking about Davion Mitchell in that context, 
then you start talking about trading him. But I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago and they were a big Knicks fan and I, you know, I was talking about the Kings and they're like, well, what do you think is the trade that the Kings would have to make to like put them in a championship contention? Obviously, I brought up OG Ananobi. That's the common one. And he was talking about, well, what would it take to get Ananobi? And I was talking about picks and all this stuff. And I was like, I think that if you threw in Davion Mitchell or something like that, maybe you could have a little bit of intrigue added to the package. And he kind of looked at me and he's like, yeah, but how much is Davion Mitchell really going to affect that trade package? And I'm like, yeah, probably not at all. And I feel like that, that that's kind of the case. I mean, what do you, how much would he affect a trade package's value? Uh, <laughs> very little. Because think about it this way. We were talking, I was like, I said, maybe Davion Mitchell is, just needs to have a starting job somewhere and go compete and build confidence on both ends of the floor, build a rhythm, figure out something new, get a new home, you know, kind of get a fresh restart. And he's like, well, what team would he start on? And we started going through the teams, some of the worst teams in the league, you know, some mid-level teams in the league. It's hard to find where he would start, and the lack of offense does not help. Yeah, Mitchell had his peak value at the end of his rookie year when Fox went out and he kind of took over the primary starting point guard role to end the season out. And actually did fairly well. And he just never really has lived up to that that level of play sense it's kind of weird he he seemed like he had something going on offense like okay like his three-point shot's not the greatest he can improve a little he has a quick first step he has a decent mid-range but it just everything just seems to be gone now and it, considering he's not even the backup point guard anymore he lost it to an undrafted guy who spent most of last year in the g league i mean it's just what value does he have, really? I mean, maybe at the start of the season. It's just going down every game. He doesn't play nowadays. We used to talk about Davion like a decent asset. Now, I mean, he's just, his value has just absolutely plummeted. I, I, I don't think he's worth much anymore. It, would, yeah. it wouldn't even be like the big part of a trade anymore. But yeah, can you trade Davion Mitchell? It's almost like when we got Jeremy Lamb uh, from, in that Sabonis trade of that Justin Holiday. It's like, oh, yeah, we got him in it too, but we don't really care. He's just going to be pieces of the puzzle now. He's never going to be the main piece in a trade for at least a decent, a decent sized name or a decent sized haul in return. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, to be fair to Davion, I mean, it's, it'd be a little better for a team to receive receive Davion than an old Jeremy Lamb or a Justin Holiday, because there, I'm sure there are teams that look at Davion Mitchell and go, okay, we could really work with that. But it, it, the question, and you answered it well, about value, it doesn't have a lot of market value. There's no pull there. So Davion Mitchell seems to have kind of put the finishing touches on the book on him, at least for now. I mean, he can develop more of an offensive game down the road. But right now, the book is out on him being kind of just a defender with no offense. And that has value, but nowhere near the value that some Kings fans thought of Davion Mitchell, rightfully so early on, and sometimes still think of unjustifiably so in regards to Davion Mitchell. But definitely something that's interesting, kind of coming up, seeing him last night, mm -hmm. it's just like, what a drop off. I know, I'm like, okay, he's finally getting another chance, and just like... Yeah, and remember remember he, he came in in that Portland game, I think after Keon Ellis had sprained his ankle, or was that before no, i thought the portland the portland game was when he lost the starting job role while fox was out oh yeah and so fox he was still out that's and, right and so davion went from starting to being off the bench and he had a great game yeah exactly that's what i was getting to thanks mm -hmm. for clearing that up of course so like we've seen him come in and like do that and i was kind of expecting something similar to that like okay here comes davion like don't hold back the gates are open go get him cowboy and it was just more of the same so, like I said, Davion Mitchell is cementing himself as the guy that just plays one end of the floor and doesn't have a lot of value in a trade package. But what are you going to do? Yeah. Oh, well, looking ahead at the next six, they're at home. I think this kind of speaks for itself. I mean, the Kings are seven and three this year at home. They've been good at the Gold One Center. But last year, I think they were tied for the second fewest home wins of all the Western Conference playing and playoff teams at 23. I think. They were tied with the two LA teams. I think Minnesota was the only team that had less home wins, which is interesting because Minnesota's had such a nice home court advantage this season. But six games at home, they play 
Oklahoma City, Utah, Washington, Boston, Phoenix, and Minnesota. You know, there's some tough games in there. There's some winnable games, I guess, against Utah and, and Washington. I mean, how important are these six games? And, and like, do they have to? Is four and two the bare minimum of what they have to do? Just if you're talking about a team going from good to great, establishing that home court advantage. I mean, four and two certainly the expectation, especially at home. Now you're you're you've cemented yourself as one of the better teams in the league. Like you were saying, you have to win the majority of your games at home. No, I mean it's not the easiest schedule at home, but you're at home. You have to win these games. Prove that you're one of the better teams in this league. So I would say four and two. I mean, that's three and three. Anything less, like you don't want to go five hundred on a six game homestand. Four, four and two is the bare minimum. And if they really want to show they're great, five and one or six and zero. Oh. But four and two, like four and two for sure. So I think it is. It's an important stretch. I mean, it's probably their longest homestand of the year this far. Probably one of the longer ones all year. I'm guessing. I haven't looked at the schedule, but six games in a row doesn't come around that often at home so you know make the most out of it i think when the schedule got announced and i wrote the article about the schedule getting announced which is always such a pain in the ass to write because there's not much to go off of one of the things that i thought was really interesting was the fact that the kings play mostly road games in the first half and you know you saw the kings play well on the road and you're not too worried about them being too far below 500 this season on the road. I think they're 500 this year so far on the road, which is solid for an NBA team. That's, you know, kind of the baseline of where you'd like to be, just break even there. And well, that meant that there was going to be more home games in the second half and down the stretch. I think in the last month, few months of the season, most of the games are home games. And I think this six game stretch can really set the tone for not only winning at home, but also setting the stage for closing out the season very strong. We talk about how tough this conference is. Things are always going to be tough. You can't expect breaks to be going your way. You just have to capitalize and control what you can control. And maybe the best example of that is just winning at home when you have a good home court advantage and you don't have to travel as much. We're talking about fatigue a lot this season. You have to take care of business. So this is this is critical. Yeah. Simple as that. It really is. And we play and we play next on what, Thursday against the Thunder. Play the Jazz Saturday, I believe. So I mean OKC's good. We beat him once already this year. Once or twice. We've only played him once, right? Yeah. Just once. For the playing game. Beat OKC once. Jazz, we beat him on opening night. I expect to beat them for sure. So big stretch and started off good tonight against OKC. But I think that's all the topics we had today. Do you have anything else to add, John? I think that's it for now. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you all for tuning in. And until next time, have a good one.